following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. So boys and girls, sometimes you've gotten something in your eye, or you walked outside on a cold morning, your eyes watered, and your vision was blurry. You couldn't see clearly, could you? Now, sometimes that blurry vision is actually a part of getting older. And so we have prayed recently for Mrs. Piper and Mrs. Long as they had what we call cataract surgery. And these are things that grow in the eye and cause blurry vision. And by God's wonderful, gracious providence, that blurry vision was taken care of. Uh, But sometimes uh, boys and girls have blurry vision and don't even know it. Perhaps you've known somebody. I don't see any of our children uh, wearing glasses. But uh, you often hear stories of boys and girls who are in school and they think everybody has blurry vision until they go to the eye doctor and they get glasses and suddenly, oh, that's what everything looks like. So although they were born with blurry vision, uh, the glasses showed them that really shouldn't be a natural thing. We all should have good vision. But sometimes we're just not aware. It's also true spiritually, though, that we can have blurry vision and not be aware of it. A blurry vision that particularly comes from improper self-esteem or our self-righteousness. Vision that causes us to look with contempt or pride on others. Uh, to inwardly lift ourselves up. A blurry vision that causes us to misjudge the application of God's providence or misapply truth that we know, but to misapply it in a wrong way. Now, we've all done that at some time or other. Perhaps even this morning, some of you here have spiritual blurry vision. Well, we look at Eliphaz to see what it looks like. So you can take Eliphaz's blurry vision and examine yourself. Because in this speech, up to verse 20, Eliphaz manifests what I'm calling spiritual blurry vision. Now here in chapter 23, uh, this begins the last cycle of speeches in the book of Job between Job and his three friends or antagonists. And Eliphaz begins now in a very strident and self-righteous way. Now that's how he first started out. If you can remember back that far in in chapters 4 and 5, Eliphaz uh, approached Job as as the gentle wise man amongst the three with some patience and gentleness as he sought to rebuke him for his really wrong speech about his conception and his birth. But Eliphaz, along with the other two, the longer Job pushes back and says, you men are wrong. This is not who I am. This is not why I am suffering. I don't know what God is doing, but I know you are wrong. And he gives very clear arguments to prove them wrong. They can't answer his arguments, so they get angrier and angrier. And finally now, the elder spokesman speaks out 
in this angry self-righteousness and condemns Job. So the summary of what we have in these 20 verses is that the the self-righteous person may have a correct speculative knowledge of God, but his vision will be blurred in its application. He may have, she may have a, a speculative correct knowledge of God, but blurry spiritual vision will cause that to be applied wrongly. I'll open that theme up under three headings. The theoretical or speculative knowledge of the self-righteous. The the self-righteous who then uh, unjustly attacks the innocent and the unjust or the self-righteous who then deceives himself. So he has good thoughts about God. He has bad thoughts about his neighbor. And he has high thoughts about himself. Well, let's look first at what I'm calling his theoretical or speculative knowledge in the first four verses. Of course, verse 1 is merely the introduction of each new speech. Literally, Job answered and said. But here's what, excuse me, we're supposed to be in 22, not in 23. Here is what uh, uh, Eliphaz said. Can a vigorous man be of use to God? Are a wise man useful to himself? Is there any pleasure to the Almighty if you are righteous or profit if you make your ways perfect? Is it because of your reverence that he reproves you that he enters into judgment against you? He he begins in verse 2 by simply asserting a very important truth. And that is that uh, nobody. So he takes the vigorous man. And the word that's used here for the man who is mighty and strong. Or he adds to that uh, a wise man in the second half of verse 2. And he asks a very important question. Can such a person be of use to God? Now, he might be of use to himself. And I think the better way to um, uh, translate the second half of verse 2 is the way the new King James does. Can a man be profitable to God? Surely he who is wise is profitable to himself. So there are surely advantages in this life of both wisdom and righteousness. Solomon speaks of this in Proverbs 9, 12, Ecclesiastes 10, 2. Paul speaks of the usefulness of righteousness. Uh, It's profitable, he says, in 1 Timothy 4, for for many things. So yes, there's profit in this life to us from wisdom and from righteousness. But the important question is, does God get any profit himself? Are you, as a human being, Even as a redeemed human being, are you of any use to God? Did he save you because he needed you? Did he make you and the angels because he needed you and them? Of course, the answer is no. Our God is independent. The uh, theological word, he has a saity. He is of himself only. He is absolutely sovereign, and he has perfect pleasure and delight in himself. He needs nor wants anything else in his being. Now, covenantally, he wants relationships, but in his pure being, he needs or wants anything else. In verse 3, Eliphaz takes it a step further. Is there any pleasure to the Almighty if you're righteous? Or profit if you make your ways perfect? 
In other words, can your obedience make God happy in who he is? Again, covenantally, yes, because you're his children. But in terms of his being, uh, does God not have an absence of pure pleasure uh, if every person on the earth rose up and sinned against him, as they did almost entirely in the days of Noah? Did that uh, affect God's pleasure? No. God has pure pleasure in himself. Oh, that you could catch this. A holy and triune God, altogether beautiful, glorious and splendid with a perfect love one for the other. Perfect satisfaction one in the other, needing nothing but himself. Now, this is a, a glorious question that Eliphaz would have us meditate on. It's a great truth that we need often uh, to be reminded. But we also need to keep that balance that I've already alluded to. That although God does not need you, in this infinite wisdom, he decided to create angels and people to whom he would reveal himself. He would, he would create an audience. He didn't need our praise. He doesn't need us to point to him, but he thought he'll give a creature that privilege to know him a bit and to point to his glory. And so it is for this reason that he made us. And it's for this reason that he has this most glorious plan of redemption. He didn't need you. He doesn't need me. He didn't need to save us. But because of his own wisdom, he determined from eternity not just to have a creature, but people, image bearers, who fall into sin and then are redeemed in this most glorious plan of redemption that no human being ever could have even begun to imagine. And so, out of himself, for nothing in you and me, he determined to place saving love and electing love on a great host of people. The Lord Jesus Christ, in prospect of becoming the eternal God-man, gave himself in this transaction to come on earth obey the law of God and offer his perfect life as a sacrifice for the sins of his people and be crucified, dead and buried, and then rise again and be exalted into heaven. And in this plan, God reveals the infinite wisdom and glory, but also in Christ Jesus, every one of God's moral attributes there at Calvary's cross are magnified in perfect harmony and unity, that we might gaze upon him through them and love him. And to know then that he has another kind of love for you. It's the love of complacency. It's the love of a father or a grandfather for children. It is a most remarkable thing when God says he loves you. It is the way that you love your children. And it is the way that you then reward your children. Not because what they've done merits any reward that you give to them. But because you delight in them, you take their efforts and you praise them and reward them because you love them. And that's what God does with us. And we revel in that. But don't get confused. He loves us in this way. He doesn't need us, though. We need him. And so it's an important question. Now, where he's coming from with this question seems to be that because God is absolutely perfect 
and he has no prepossession, then that's basically Eliphaz's argument that everybody that's wicked is going to be judged simply because that's what God does. Uh, he's not affected by their wickedness. He simply judges all wickedness. And everybody who is good and righteous, then God blesses. Not that he's affected by what they do, but he's determined kind of objectively. And this is why that he'll argue, well, look, you're wrong, Job. The, the wicked in this life always suffer judgment. The righteous in this life always will have God's blessing. So he presses it a bit further. In verse 4, is it because of your reverence that he reproves you? Now, the King James says it's because his fear of you. And, and if that were the question, he'd be saying, well, is God in some way intimidated by you? Well, I've just shown you that he is objective and perfect, that he is, is dealing with you in this way. But it's much better with the context and the translation of the word as the modern translations do. Is it because of your reverence, your piety, that he reproves you, that he enters into judgment against you? So now he's bringing this to bear. He said, all right, Job, Job God is this way. Well, then, you're suffering. If God is unaffected by what you do, then is, is your righteousness going to um, be the basis of, of the way God is, is dealing with you? Is it because of your piety that he is reproving you and entering into a, a judgment against you? And obviously, this rhetorical question uh, is answered no. Uh, God never chastens his people because of their piety. He chastens us to produce more piety. But what he's doing with Job in this situation is, look, Job, you're suffering. And because you're suffering, don't think that your past obedience can alleviate it. Yes, you once were a righteous man. Remember, that's where Eliphaz begins with Job uh, in chapter 4, that uh, you've been known for wisdom and righteousness. And we'll all admit that. But whatever you've done since then. So what he's saying now is that whatever you have done in the past, no way can alleviate or atone for your sin. Now, that's also true. It's, the prophet says it in uh, Ezekiel thirty-three, thirteen. When I say to the righteous, he will surely live. And he so trusts in his righteousness, he commits iniquity. None of his righteousness deeds will be remembered. But in that same iniquity of his, which he's committed, he will die. You see what God's saying there. Your past deeds cannot atone for your sin. It's not the idea of the old-timey scale and you put your good deeds on one side and your sin on the other and the good deeds outweigh it. No. You can do nothing in your works to atone for sin. Now, that's what Eliphaz is saying here. In other words, he would be saying that He's talking about God's transcendent greatness and his grace. His grace, which he doesn't really understand, as you'll see, because he's self-righteous. But he can say these. He, can know, he believes these things. You understand that? That's why he has buried vision. That's why you and I can have buried There's a lot of things that we can believe, and when we say the rubber hits the road, well, it doesn't really work out in our response to God, does it? So what does he do? After asserting uh, the greatness and grace of God, he then falsely accuses Job of terrible sins. 
And it begins in verse 5 with an indictment. Is it because, uh, is not your wickedness great and your iniquities without end? Now, how has he gotten there at this point? Well, Job is suffering grievously. Because Job is suffering grievously, Eliphaz has every ground to say that Job's wickedness is great and iniquities without end. Now, it's interesting. This is the first overt application or accusation against Job. It's been implied. Job knew fully well of whom they were speaking. But you see, now he begins to speak of you. In verse 3, any pleasure to the Almighty, if you are righteous, if you make your ways perfect, is it because of your reverence he reproves you? And now he simply says, is not your wickedness great? Iniquities without end. This iniquities without end reminds us of how our sins pile up. Every day, you commit more sin than you can even begin to imagine. I commit more sin than I can begin to imagine. You know, I, I will search my heart and I will confess my sins to you too as well. I can remember when I was uh, a poor, blind Roman Catholic and I would go to confession. And I was always thinking, how in the world can I even begin to remember these things that I've done so I can get forgiveness? And obviously, because I'm a finite person, talking to a finite person, there's no hope. But because I'm a finite sinner saved by grace, even though my sins are without number, God does not hold them against me when I don't remember all of them. He forgives me for Christ's sake and will continue in my sanctification to teach me more. But now I'm accusing Job of being a wicked and gross sinner. But now he brings evidence. So in verses 6 through 11... He brings evidence we could actually say is a summary of the last six commandments of the second table of the law. So, Job, here's what you've done. You've taken pledges of your brothers without cause and stripped men naked. Now, a pledge is some collateral or guarantee you're going to pay a loan. In fact, I saw a billboard driving down here this morning that if you do this loan without some type of of collateral, you're in trouble. It costs you more. Um, and so we have collateral that we'll put on a loan, or even a down payment is, is a, a collateral. So uh, in the ancient days of the patriarchs and of the ancient church, um, oftentimes the collateral was a person's outer garment, which was, for the poor, the most expensive thing they owned. But God's law was quite clear. If you take it, he must bring it back every night because that's how he warms himself when he's asleep. So Job's being accused here of taking it, and he's taking it really from those from whom he shouldn't without cause. And they were his brethren. This is not strangers of whom he did not know or he couldn't come collect the next day. But no, he says, you've taken these pledges from your brothers, your kith and kin, without cause and stripped men naked. You've left them nothing to warm themselves at night. He next accuses him of uh, injustice to the needy. To the weary, you've given no water to drink. And from the hungry, you've withheld bread. You've refused to, to help those who come by your place. And they just need 
some water. They need, they need some food. But Job selfishly withholds all help. You remember how important it is to the Savior in, in, in Matthew chapter 25 when he uses this as the grounds of condemnation when we don't uh, do to our brothers and sisters uh, these things. Christ says we're not doing them to him. And then in his arrogance, the earth belongs to the mighty man, verse 8, and the honorable man dwells in it. Well, Job sees himself above all levels of inquiry, righteousness, or justice. No, he is the mighty man. He takes what he wants. He can exercise uh, any kind of judgment that he desires to exercise. And then it caps it off in verse 9. You've sent widows away empty, and the strength of the orphan has been crushed. Again, costly through Scripture. The height of injustice is the failure to care for the widows and for the orphans. And here Job is accused now of doing all these things. So because of that, look in verse 10 at the therefore. He said, Job, this is why you're suffering what you're suffering. And he gives four things that Job is suffering. Uh, Three of them have already been mentioned uh, earlier in the book. Uh, Snares surround you. The snares and traps of God's judgment have tripped up Job and, uh, and grabbed him and dragged him before God. And sudden dread terrifies you, the dread of conscience calling out against him and filling him with terror. Darkness so that you cannot see. Time and again they said light is removed from your tent, the light of joy and pleasure and uh, illumination to walk in right ways. You know, you've been blinded. And then he adds an abundance of water covers you. Now he's going to pick back up on that in the next couple of verses, but... Here is the judgment of the flood. Now, do you think that Eliphaz is slandering Job here? Uh, no. Eliphaz is self-righteously reasoning that, well, Job, I don't know what you've done wrong, but these are some of the most serious sins in our culture, so obviously you've broken all of them. You wouldn't be suffering the way you're suffering. So it's not that he's simply uh, out of the air like a magician drawing a rabbit out of a hat and inventing these things, but he's assuming that because of how much Job is suffering, which has been part of their problem all along, that he must be guilty of these most serious social sins. And so he wrongly accuses him and pronounces God's judgment on him with this fourfold judgment. But now what's interesting here is, remember, that these men lived before we had the Ten Commandments. And as far as we know, they had no written scripture. They maybe had snippets. They had the oral tradition passed down from Adam to Noah and Noah to the godly men in their day. They would have periodically perhaps themselves received some message from God. But all these things parallel the... the, Indicate the, uh, the condemnation of God in the, the Pentateuch. That all these things are wrong by the law of God as it's applied. So what this teaches us here is, is two aspects. One is we all have on our hearts a remnant of God's law. Before God put it on stone, people knew. And uh, second is they had some record of that. And so it shows us the beautiful continuity of God's moral will. And what we know is what they knew, only we know it much more clearly. Now, a second thing that is important here as we do evangelism uh, and as we preach 
is that you'll notice he doesn't stop with verse 5. Job, is not your wickedness great and your iniquities without end? No, he is quite specific. Specificity is a very important part of preaching the law of God. And even though you're not going to cover everything a person has done, when you are specific in applying the commandments of God in evangelism the way Ray Comfort does it, or in preaching the way Perkins teaches us, people are convicted of sin. Now, Eliphaz is trying to indict him, but it's still a very important principle. Get specific with the law of God in applying it to people. And the Spirit uses that to bring them under conviction of sin. But now, Eliphaz doesn't stop there. He's dealt with the second table of law. Now he goes on in verses 12 through 17 to deal with the first part of God's law, that Job is also guilty of sinning against God. He's atheistic. He's impious. Once again, he begins well. Look at verse 12. Is not God in the heights of heaven? Look also at distant stars, how high they are. He's saying God is above the stars. God made the stars. And you look at the stars, they should direct your attention to God. Now, I know that you boys and girls have gone out, particularly on a cold winter night, and looked at the stars, maybe seen the Milky Way. And, and you started trying to count the stars, and you quickly ran out of numbers. Now, that's just our galaxy. The minimum number of galaxies is 200 billion. Now, boys and girls, that's a two with 14 zeros behind it. Okay? A two with 14 zeros. If you got $2 allowance, that's a two with two zeros. This is a two with 14 zeros behind it. Now, take all the stars that you can see with the naked eye, multiply that with two and 14 zeros behind it. That is the, the, the minimum amount of stars that God made, that God named, that God orders and keeps each one in its place. How high is God? How glorious is God? When you look at the night sky, may the Spirit remind you that your God is above the heavens. Your God made the heavens. How great your God is. But he doesn't stop there. He gives this great statement about God, and now he applies it wrongly to Job. He accuses him of saying, you say, what does God know? <laughs> Can he judge through thick darkness? Clouds are a hiding place for him. He cannot see. He walks on the vault of heaven. <coughs> so he says, yeah, Job, you agree with me that God is great and above the stars. But you've said, because he is transcendent, because he's high and above everything, he really doesn't know what's going on down here. He really cannot accurately judge. You see, he's reasoning backwards. Job, you're saying he doesn't judge all wicked men in this life. <clears throat> well, you're saying he doesn't know. And he's ignorant of what's going on. Or at best, he's like a, the, the deist clockmaker who has wound up the clock and let it go its own way. Or the Epicureans of ancient philosophy, even in the days of the Reformers, who believed that God was an absentee landlord. That's what he's accusing Job. So he's accusing Job of absolute atheism. That God cannot be a perfect judge because he either cannot or will not concern himself with what's going on. So that's the first attack. Second attack, he takes the word of Job, which he really did not like, uh, being told that the wayfaring man knew more than he did. 
And so what does he say here? Will you keep to the ancient path which wicked men have trod? He's basically saying, Job, the wayfaring man to whom you referred as a testimony of the universal truth that God doesn't judge all people in this life, but will judge all people eventually. (coughs) Well, (coughs) those people only walk in wickedness. They are on the ancient path of the seed of the serpent. They are those themselves who are full of iniquity. And so, Job, if you're listening to them, that means you are walking with them again in violation of the true God. So he has uh, misinterpreted the general theology of Job. He's taken this argument, and now uh, the next thing he does is actually... um, well, no, he says of those wicked men in verse 16, who they were, they were snatched away before their time. And the foundations were washed away by a river. So he's actually referring to the men of Noah's day. So when he says the men who've trod the wicked path and they were taken away in due time, before time, prematurely, when the flood came, uh, the foundations were washed away by a river. And often a river is used this way uh, for a flood of water, and I believe he has reference here to the generation of Noah's day. So he was walking in the paths of those that denied God and God destroyed. And then he now quotes Job, and actually quotes him verbatim in verses 17 and 18. We'll deal with 17 here. They said to God, depart from us, and what can the Almighty do to them? So um, They're saying, the wicked to which Job refers, is that that's what they say. That uh, they're telling God, buzz off, depart from us, and they believe that God cannot do anything to them. Now he is ascribing this sentiment to Job, you see. He's saying that Job agreed with them when he says that uh, God postponed judgment. uh, That Job is telling God to depart because the Almighty cannot do anything to them. So now he has accused Job of breaking the first table of the law. Once again, by perverting things Job has said. So inventing social crimes and now perverting Job's words to make him appear to be an atheistic, impious despiser of God. Now do you see how Eliphaz in his self-righteousness has wrongly accused Job, the innocent man. Job, the man that God said is blameless, upright, a God-fearer who turns away from evil. Well, why in the world would a man who was a believer, a man who knew so much about God, why would he come to these terrible accusations? Well, that's the third thing. We've seen his theoretical knowledge, his, his false accusations, but now we see in the end of this section... Uh, his, the self-righteous man deceives himself. He continues in verse 18 to pick up on what Job said, but now he applies it to himself. Uh, again, Job had said, yet he filled their houses with good things, but the counsel of the wicked is far from me. It goes back to uh, verse 16 of chapter 21. Their prosperity is not in their hand. And by that, what Job meant was it's God who gave them the prosperity. And the counsel of the wicked is far from me. So Eliphaz is saying that Job has actually said that God fills their house with good. In other words, blessings. Not simply that God gave them the prosperity they had, but God has blessed them 
Eliphaz says, that counsel of the wicked is far from me. I would never say that God has blessed the wicked in any way whatsoever. Now, what Job said was basically the same thing. Who is the Almighty we should serve him, and what would we gain if we entreat him? Behold, their prosperity is not in their hand. The counsel of the wicked is far from me. I want nothing to do with it, he says. He says, I don't envy them. I don't long to be in their place. But he wrongly accuses Job, and now he says this is his attitude. He separates himself from all the thoughts, all the plans, all the counsel of the wicked. And notice how he classifies himself. The righteous see and are glad. The innocent mock them, saying, truly, our adversaries are cut off, and their abundance the fire has consumed. He suddenly now has placed himself in the category of the righteous. And he's basically denying everything he said in the first three verses. Because he's saying, I know I am righteous because God has blessed me abundantly. Just as I know you, Job, are wicked because you're being punished. He suddenly has put himself in the place of God. He's made God tit for tat in how he deals uh, with everybody. He really knows nothing about the greatness or the grace of God. And in fact, in his deceit, he's proud and arrogant. He says, the righteous, including himself and his friends, we're glad. The innocent mock because the adversaries, all the wicked, they're cut off and their abundance has fire been consumed. Not only does he talk about the flood, probably here deals with Sodom and Gomorrah destroyed by fire. There's this awful judgment of God that is coming down upon them. Now, I just want you to think about this. We are, we know from the Psalms, we are to rejoice when God punishes the wicked. When God vindicates his church. And shows his, his strong arm. But we're never to gloat. And we're not to mock the wicked when he's being punished. You, you see, in his proud, self-righteous, self-deceiving attitude, Eliphaz is saying, we just simply take great pleasure in the destruction or the judgment that we see around us. And we shouldn't. We should mourn. We should mourn their sin. And we should mourn what we know is happening to them. In heaven, it'll be very different. In heaven, we'll have perfect attitude. In heaven, we will rejoice in the justice of God. His glory will be manifested even when we see loved ones in hell. But here, it's not our purpose to put people in heaven or hell. And we surely don't want to gloat as these men were gloating at the destruction of uh, of, of the wicked. But what you see in him now is a self-righteous pride. You see that? The way he's responding here? Placing himself in the category of the righteous, being rewarded by God, gloating and glorying in God's justice. And so the self-righteous man can have theoretical knowledge of greatness, grace of God, but have a blurry vision in how he works that out. So I want to ask you a couple of questions. In the first place, do you have blurry vision with respect to yourself today? Like Eliphaz, that um, you are doing really well because you, you are, God is so 
pleased with you and he is simply uh, rewarding you and if you really were asked about it, you would say, yes, uh, I'm sure that I add to God's pleasure. And we have to keep that difference in mind. He takes pleasure in you, but you cannot add to his pleasure. We'll make that distinction, okay? So do you think that your works commend you to God? Do you think your works cause God to have any saving favor towards you? Are there some here who think that, well, God has given me great uh, peace and material blessings because then I know I must be a Christian? Well, the whole thing that Job's been showing is, no, that's not so. That's what Eliphaz would say. But Job says, no, God gives uh, material blessings and a good life to the wicked sometimes here. That's not where you are. That is self-righteousness. Now, every one of us, we view ourselves, must find ourselves indeed, as Job has described in verse 5, um, our wickedness is great and our iniquities are without end. That's where you must begin. Do you see yourself there today? Then you cry out to God for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ to save you from your sins. And that God does perfectly. And then he will delight in you as a child. Don't always give you good things. They're good, but you don't know they're good. But he'll always take care of you. So make sure that your self-assessment is not perverted by self-righteousness. But then we must also be careful about the other problem with Eliphaz, and that is your assessment of others. Is that also at times um, blurred with self-righteousness? We've already talked about this many times, but when you see a Christian family suffering in some way or another, it's not your first thought at times that they must have really sinned against God. Or some of their children have rebelled, and it's not your first thought, well, they did something wrong. You see, that is the blurry vision of self-righteousness. God is in heaven. He's separate. He acts in a way, as we saw in Romans 11, completely mysterious to us. And we not make those judgments. But how about the other judgments that we tend to make? Um, we love the sovereign grace of God and salvation, and the, these people are Christians, but they don't. And so we're superior. We have a proper view of the Sabbath. They don't. I'm superior. We have a proper view of high worship. They don't. I'm superior. You see, this is, this is, we find ourselves... Even as we glory in the greatness of God's truth and he, is, he shows us so much, we never have the right to look down on those to whom he's not shown it. He's God. And we need to, to treat them open-armedly as brothers and sisters and to pray for them as we have opportunity to speak to them of truth, but not to become proudly judgmental. And the second part of that is we must then be willing... As uh, Father Calvin teaches us to affirm truth wherever you find it. Sometimes in our self-righteousness, we will cut off anybody that really doesn't agree with us pretty much across the board. But Calvin in the Institute says, no, you affirm truth where you find it. Even when a non-Christian, it's remarkable how Calvin in the Institute's commentaries will use non-Christian philosophers at times to, to prove a point. But 
more so for us, we can profit from the theology of Thomas Aquinas, from the hymns of Charles Wesley, from the writings of C.S. Lewis. They had error, but they had good things to say. And when we read or hear or sing the good things they say, we thank God for truth because it's his truth. Father, we do thank you. We thank you that you have revealed to us the blurry vision of self-righteousness so that we, Lord, can be corrected by your spirit. Forgive us when we have had wrong self-assessment, our assessment of others in pride or self-righteousness. Humble us, Lord, by your greatness. This is what we should be when we think that you are indeed independent and self-sufficient and exalted above the stars, that we might properly bow before you in all love and adoration. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.